Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stuart Farimund about his new book, The Science of Living or Living Your Best Life. 219 Science-Based Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. Explore the science behind your daily living habits and make your day healthier, happier, and more productive. Many of the activities we take for granted are in fact contrary to our healthy lifestyle. In this groundbreaking book, long-held beliefs are uh, exploded by new science. Drinking eight glasses a day is too much. Breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day. Smartphones are not making us all depressed. Bringing to bear the latest research in psychology, nutrition, biology, and physics, Dr. Stuart Farmand unearths the facts behind the fads and provides takeaway advice on every area of our lives. And all delivered in Dr. Stu's trademark style, approachable, authoritative, and above all, entertaining. Livia Bay's best life debunks pseudoscience and delivers only the facts. One day, one body, over 200 examples of science in action. Well, Stuart, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Janina. Oh, it's great to have you. Okay, so as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the pandemic, I'd like to start by asking how has it influenced you and your work? That's a great question. Uh, now I work as a science communicator uh, and science writer. So I do things, radio, TV and write articles and books. So this is my third book. I recently trained as a medical doctor. Uh, the reason that I had a rather significant career change was for health reasons. So I left medicine because I was diagnosed with a brain tumour Um so this was probably now 12, 13 years or so it'll get ago. Um, so and I have been had some more treatment for that over the last sort of 18 months or so. So when the COVID pandemic hit, I was actually going through a course of chemotherapy at the time, uh, just coming to the tail end of finishing chemotherapy. So the whole COVID pandemic thing meant that I had to uh, completely shield. So although everybody was sort of... Um, locked down so to speak um i was sort of under extra sort of precautions um that, that were based in the in the uk where i live um so that was kind of very sort of limiting but so i think that's just sort of been sort of coronavirus plus um extra sort of restrictions that said um i think you know the whole coronavirus thing has been not too bad uh, you know, very sort of blessed. I've got, you know, wife, lovely house, you know, financially we've been okay. Books continue to sell and actually sold really well over the pandemic. People have been buying more books than ever. 
So, you know, I've count, I count myself very fortunate. I've not had any health problems throughout all of this. So, yes. Uh, the, I mean, the only thing is that I would say that TV stuff has rather dried up quite a lot. Um, so, but that's, you know, but it's okay. There's a lot. There, I've got enough things going on in my life to keep me keep me occupied. That's great. So have you picked up any new hobbies or some ways to cope perhaps with the stress? Well, one of my passions is I always love cycling. Uh, and so one thing that I discovered when I was going through chemotherapy and radiotherapy was indoor cycling with a smart trainer. So if, you, if you're not familiar, you can use your bike and then you put it onto a sort of a device uh which is sort of a, like a turbo trainer you might have heard them called but it's sort of a, it hooked up to a computer and so you can you can cycle indoors and you you, you can essentially cycle in a video game and so I've, I've been doing that and that's been keeping me sane so that when i can't get out i can't you know can't go out for a run for my health reasons or i can't go out for out, outdoors it just gives me sort of a great therapy to sort of completely um you know work off steam and so yeah, I found exercise has been really sort of therapeutic throughout this whole time. Wow, that's an excellent idea. I've never heard of these smart uh, cycling trainers. <laughs> mm. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's grown hugely in popularity. If you want to actually get hold of a smart trainer, any, any bike stuff at all in the UK, it's extremely difficult to get hold of just because it's been a lifeline for so many people. But I haven't actually taken up any new hobbies, I would say. So no sourdough for you? <laughs> My wife has been doing lots more baking than normal, and I've been sort of the beneficiary of that. And I must say yeah. that I have started doing some gardening. My wife's a normal gardener. She's a, she's a trainer florist, and she does a lot of growing herself to grow flowers. Um, so I've, I've sort of started getting my, my fingers a bit green. So that's been kind of fun to see, you know, nature do incredible things. Excellent. Well, you mentioned that uh, you are a medical doctor and now you're a science communicator. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes. So as I've sort of said, originally trained as a medical doctor. I've always lived in the UK. I spent some of my time living in a Channel Island called Jersey, which is between which is between England and France, although it's much closer to France than it is England. It's a little island nine miles by five. I lived there for about six years of of my late uh, childhood in sort of the formative later years before I went to university. I then moved to the Midlands in, uh, in the UK to study medicine at Nottingham University. I then worked for about three or so years is as a as a hospital doctor before being diagnosed with the brain tumor which is a it's a brain cancer so it's a brain malignancy that that can't be cured hence i've had, had it treated 12 or 13 years ago uh it left me with epilepsy which forced me out of medicine um i then went and retrained and did teaching so i taught science and biology based subjects for 16 to 19 year olds in a kind of college called a further education college in the uk which is sort of a, an alternative to the late stages of high school uh so an alternative to to schooling before you go to university so i taught that it was that that i really discovered a passion for explaining science uh, to people who have no interest at all in anything kind of biology, health, science related at all. And that, and that was sort of a really pivotal turning point for me. From the teaching, I then uh, found my way into science writing and doing things in the media and on 
TV and radio and bits and pieces like this. And again, I just found a real love for that in in relating, you know, the amazing thing that is science, which is which is this philosophy really of understanding the world around us and how amazing this world is um, and using science as a vehicle for opening all of our eyes to the amazingness of this life and this world that we all have that we all have so that's my kind of that's my sort of my backstory and how I've ended up uh, being a science communicator uh, the first book I wrote was called the science of cooking and I sort of fell into food science uh, as an ideal way to convey science because you know food is something that we all eat and we all have opinions on food a lot of us like cooking and it's kind of this this and, and cooking and food it, it is there's so much science in it and I found that a, an incredible way to sort of make people realize science this thing is everywhere it's not this bookish boring pursuit but it's something that is relevant to your every day and so food and cooking was sort of my way into that and several things that I did uh, that I'd written uh, and I we kind of became quite popular I started writing about a thing called biscuit dunking which I don't know is done in Switzerland or in many places in Europe, but it's a very peculiar thing that British people do. And I think some South Africans do it and Australians do it with certain chocolate uh, biscuits. And it's it's where you just basically get a, a cookie, a biscuit, and you would dunk it in your cup of tea, traditionally. And it's just something that is a British peculiarity. And like many aspects of food, it's something that everybody has an opinion on. And and I and I did a sort of a light-hearted bit of science research on it and put it on an online blog, and it got picked up. And and, and there was a BBC uh, one-off documentary that they were doing historically about all the British fascination with biscuits. And they got in touch with me. They saw what I'd been doing, and they said, "Would you come and do a little uh, little science slot on this on this program for us?" So they wheeled me out with my, with my lab coat on in the very kind of cheesy cliche. Okay, here's the science behind biscuit dunking, and that gave me an opportunity to explain the science in the everyday. And I loved it, and I loved you know a way to be able to communicate, to use the media to reach a large number of people because I discovered that. What people learn when they're when by the time they got to about sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, they're beliefs and their understanding of science for most people probably 90 percent of people it doesn't develop from that point on and i discovered with the teaching of these young people was that their understanding and appreciation of science was pretty crude um and that's not to not to be mean or or, or diminish them in any way it was just sort of and i just thought some real shame and so I, I took up on myself to go actually it isn't this bookish boring thing where you get bored in school and you just have to learn things off a, off a whiteboard but it's this incredible thing that actually enriches and fulfills your life so it was that that sort of drew me into it the science of cooking was the first sort of successful thing that I had a book was written called the science of cooking which was published by um a company called a publisher called DK books or Dorling Kindersley it became sort of a a top seller they then came back to me and said, would you like to do another book? And the second book was called The Science of Spice, which is sort of 
more for sort of the the, the cookie kind of the chef kind of person and it basically takes a look at flavor and at spices and what is the scientific underpinning behind that and so it was kind of a, a deep dive if you like on on science but then turned into something that's very kind of accessible and even sort of put together this what I call a periodic table of spices and so that you can use some scientific principles in a kind of like a fun way to sort of make your own spice blends and to add flavors to whatever dish it is that you that you are cooking and it's all kind of built in with all the history of of spices and the regional different variations there are in the spices that are used as well as all the the botanical basis of things and the flavor compounds that are in individual foods which are the substances that give food their aroma and their individual flavors and again that's been a really successful book um probably even now more successful than the science of cooking because it's kind of found this niche uh, internationally it's been translated into lots of different languages and i guess off the off the back of those two dawling kindersley dk books came back to me and said what would you like to do next? And I said, okay, I want I fancy doing this book called The Science of Living. Or at first I called it The Science of Life, which is sort of a, a kind of a, a brave vision of is it possible to do a book that answers all those I wonder why questions that we have every day? You know, those sorts of things that we all have. We kind of wandering in the park or, you know, we're having a shower or something, and we think something like why is it that I can never remember my dreams? Why is it that I have my best ideas when I'm on the toilet or if I'm just, you know, daydreaming? When is the best time that I should drink my cup of coffee? Is there a science behind all of this stuff? How can I be best creative? Is there a science behind, you know, the best workplace environment? What's the healthiest breakfast? Is breakfast the most important meal of the day? And I sort of, and I started collecting all these questions that sort of come to us. And I got in touch with people and said, what are those questions that you have on a day-to-day basis that just come up and you always wonder what the answer is and you're never quite sure. And sometimes a lot of these questions, you see them maybe in magazine articles, they're talking about what's the healthiest X, Y, and Z. Um, but a lot of the time when you see these things or you, f- you find them in these clickbait articles online, they're not very uh, authoritative. You know, they're very readable, but you kind of think, what's the science behind this? And as a sort of a, an inquiring scientific person, I sort of set it upon myself to see if I could find out the most authoritative answer that you could have to these everyday questions that we have, not limiting to to diet, to fitness, to weight loss, or any of these things that are, that are very common uh, that you would have a lot of books written about, but about everything in its entirety. And so I sort of I presented this to them and said, you know, this is just something I've been thinking of. What do you think? Thinking that they would go, whoa, that's way too much. Um, <laughs> and, and they kind of, they got it. And they said, yeah, okay, we kind of see the idea here. And I, I, I originally came with the idea of let's base it around a person's day. So from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, all the things that happen to you in the day, you know, 
So as I said, why can't I remember my dreams when I first wake up? Why do I feel so groggy first thing in the morning? When's the best time to have my first cup of coffee? Should I brush my teeth before or after I've had breakfast? Is breakfast the most important meal of the day? And just all these things as you go through the day. Why do I get road rage? You know, what's the ideal commute to work? What's the optimum workplace for me to work in? All these things that as they come to you throughout the day sort of compiled into this book and as I wrote the book you know I thought I knew quite a lot of stuff that I'd kind of accumulated through medical knowledge and you know writing and all these sorts of things that I've been doing and the teaching and you realize that if you're going to answer these questions properly you need to get right down to the nuts and bolts of it and so a lot of this book was uh, contacting experts from around the world like sleep experts exercise experts, nutritional experts, and these people, um, various uh, professors from around the world. And so, you know, the wonder of the the internet is that you can just contact these people and so many people were just so generous with their time. And I just met some fantastic people in kind of getting to the bottom of these questions. And I think having a scientific background meant that I could find the the academic research that that you could kind of get into answering those questions so for example waking up first thing in the morning um it you know that's something that's not actually been very well researched you look through the literature and you will see that most research based on sleep is about falling asleep and staying asleep written about what is it that gets you up in the morning, there's very little. And so I found it very useful to find various sleep experts. There's a chap called Dr. Neil Stanley, who's been extremely helpful in in the sort of the sleep parts of the book. I kind of came to it at the beginning and at the end of the book. The book was intended to take about 12 months to write, and then it took about 18 months. So I think he probably thought I'd given up the ghost with it all. So, but 18 months later, I got back in touch with uh, Dr. Stanley and said, you know, that sleep thing we're talking about, about waking up, for which there wasn't much research for. Um, I've got some now questions about going to sleep. Now we've got to the end of the day. Um, so it's those, but it's when you find, uh, you know, the top professors and the doctors, the people who've dedicated their life to this specific field, you can say, I've got this far in the research but does this really mean this, as I understand it? And what about these gaps in the research? What's the best, what's the scientific consensus say about this topic? And so that I can understand it and then turn it into an answer, turn it into a nice, lighthearted, sort of pithy answer that hopefully has some kind of some some hints and tips on how we can change our life for the better, incorporating the science and in a way that we can understand. So that is the book in a nutshell. So why the number 219? Yeah, why nine? Great question. <laughs> and there was never any specific number. I just put it together. And the person, when, they, when the art team were putting together the design for it, they obviously went through and counted them all and they said, oh, there's 219. So they wanted to put that on the front cover. So there's no other reason other than the fact that I just <laughs> happened to write 219. And so it's the little subtitle is 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. Pure coincidence. So as I, so as I mentioned, uh, you structured your book around uh, um, several uh, parts of the day, of the person's day. So mm. you have morning, you have uh, your day afternoon, you've got your evening, and then you have your night. 
Yeah. So if we start start with the morning, what mm. would be a couple of your best and your favorite uh, topics? Well, the one that people always ask me about is about the coffee bowl. When they hear that there is the answer to the question, when's the best time to drink my first cup of coffee? People say, what's the answer to that question? And I will give you the answer, which is based on the available research and the sleep experts that I've spoken to. Uh, but you, Galena, and people listening to this may well disagree, because when I've given the answer to this, it's one of those things that people get very hot under the collar about. If you dare say that people are drinking their coffee at the wrong time of the day, they want you to know that you are wrong, and that they are right. But the science says that drinking a coffee first thing in the morning when you first wake up isn't the optimum time to have that coffee if you're wanting to get maximum effect of the caffeine in the coffee, which is presumably one of the reasons why we would drink our coffee in the morning. And to answer the question, you have to find out how is it that coffee or caffeine in any sort of caffeinated beverage works and it works by blocking a substance in the brain, a neurotransmitter, so basically a chemical or a brain hormone, if you like, called adenosine. And that is a substance in the brain that builds up throughout the day. You can kind of think of it as being a product of the brain working throughout the day. And that substance, adenosine, that's the thing that makes you feel sleepy. So at the end of the day, when you're feel, feeling tired, you can't think properly, your eyes getting heavy and you want to go to bed, that is the effects of adenosine affecting your brain and caffeine works by blocking that substance it blocks adenosine it blocks the receptors from working from sensing that sleep inducing that sleepy substance called adenosine and so if you have coffee first thing in the morning then when you first wake up that is the time of the day when adenosine is at its lowest you've literally just woken up and throughout the night when you've been sleeping your body's been getting rid of the previous day's accumulation of this adenosine so if you have a coffee first thing in the morning then actually you're not making best use of it and furthermore, is when you first wake up in the morning, you have this natural energizing hormone surging through your blood called cortisol, also known as the stress hormone. And that is naturally at its highest in the first half an hour or so of waking up. And that hormone's job is to get you going in the morning. It's the thing that gets you out of bed. And the moment you wake up, that cortisol level surges. It's been building up for an hour and a half or so, hour and a half or so uh, since bef before you wake up, before your natural waking time, getting ready to wake you up. You open your eyes with the sunlight coming into your room. Uh, the cortisol then is released in increasing amounts. You have this surge of this let's get going hormone cortisol. It peaks within about half an hour of waking up it's called the cortisol awakening response and that gets you out of bed and if you're having a caffeine on top of the natural kickstart that you've got then actually the caffeine isn't doing very much because adenosine is very low and and the cortisol is quite high so essentially you're poor basically throwing a few matches onto an already burning bonfire so if you're going to have coffee, then I would say you should just wait an hour or a couple of hours. You tend to find a couple of hours after waking, the cortisol is starting to wane, adenosine levels are starting to build up. That is the time 
two, maybe three hours after waking when you want to, when you're starting to feel a bit sleepy again, maybe that's the time when you want to have your coffee. But they don't have the coffee too late in the day because coffee can take a long time to be uh, metabolized in the body for your body to get rid of this this stimulant. And so you don't have it too late. So that is what I would say is the answer for when is the best time to drink your first cup of coffee. Would you like some more answers? It's uh, quite surprising, isn't it? Uh, It is. For many people. Hmm. Mm. And what about the afternoon? So what is uh, the the most interesting thing that you found? I mean, the thing is, is that there's so many things to pick one thing out of the afternoon. And, <laughs> and a lot of the thing is, a lot of things are that things don't fit neatly into little morning, afternoon, evening and night. So we had to had to make some sort of flexibility. So some things will fall neatly into certain areas. So breakfast, for example, is 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 very clearly a morning thing. Afternoon. I guess one of the important things in the afternoon is understanding the post-lunch slump, which is that thing of when you've had lunch in the afternoon, you just want to go to sleep. And people say, what can I do to, to not feel so sleepy after lunch? And we call it the post-lunch slump. But the thing is, that it hasn't really got that much to do with lunch. You need to appreciate that we have evolved um, over thousands of years and and over millennia in regions of the world near the equator so places of the world where it's really hot in the early afternoon and i don't know if glenn if you've ever sort of done a lot of traveling and maybe you've been to sort of equatorial regions maybe equatorial africa for example have you ever have you ever been to places like that Uh, I used to work in Italy and in Piemonte, it was very, very hot during the day Mm. and I was working with the horses. So from about 12, from noon till about five o'clock, everybody was sleeping, Mm. literally. And then we would work the the evening and then we would socialize till about four o'clock in the morning and then have a bit of a nap. So the whole sleep cycle was completely uh, off-put, basically. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I think, you know, People who live in Europe, uh, as opposed to in the UK, have got this a lot better. There is a more of a siesta culture. I think in in Britain and in the US, less so. There's this this, this mentality of got to work from nine to five. And that's completely against our body clock because we naturally have this lull in the early afternoon. There isn't really anything to do with uh there isn't really anything to do with with the food that we've eaten that said a big heavy lunch will worsen this soporific this sleepy sensation that we get that we just need to sort of not work and uh, we can't think as clearly we have a body clock and that is telling us that this is a time when you want to have a snooze we're actually built for not one sleep a day we're built for two and it's quite natural for us to want to put our head to to the pillow uh in the early afternoon and so that's one thing to appreciate is that if you're trying to just work through if you if you're in an office environment and your boss says you've got to work through from nine to five and you can't have a break then you're gonna have a lull between the hours of one and three or two till four even if you're not in a particularly warm climate or indoors with air conditioning on the whole day you still biologically your body clock is telling you to take a nap so i think that appreciating that is really important and knowing that if you skip your lunch and you just keep going um you you can alleviate some of that slump for a while because if you're hungry 
hunger has a very stimulatory effect on it. It also makes us a bit angry, uh, which is why when we're hungry, we get quite angry, is that it, it triggers these survival responses in us, is that if you're hungry, then then we want to hunt for food. We want we engage in food-seeking behaviour. And a part of that is that we get quite irritable. We get quite grumpy uh, because we're in the frame of mind of we must eat to survive. So if you stop yourself from eating, then you'll get this 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 adrenaline lift, if you like, this this survival response of I'll keep going, I'll keep going. So for an hour or two through your time when you'd normally be having lunch, you'll probably be able to carry on working. You're thinking, yeah, I'm feeling really good. I can keep going. But the thing is, after that, maybe about two or three o'clock, then it'll hit you and you will have the you'll have the downer as a result that your body is saying, no, actually, I need to rest. I need some sleep. So uh, taken as a whole, you need to appreciate, if you can't have a nap, which um, in many parts of the world you can't. Interestingly, China, I don't think they do anymore. They did, I believe there used to be laws to mandate that people were allowed to have a break or a nap in the early afternoon. Many places, obviously, you can't do that. And if you can't do that, then you should move from work that is the sort of the intellectually demanding stuff, the work that involves you having to concentrate and think very hard. Those sorts of demanding, you know, brain working jobs, you should use that. You should do them in the first two to three hours of your working day. So between the sort of the hours of nine and 11 or nine and 12, that for most people is your prime time for your brain so don't do the things like cleaning out the inbox of the spam first thing in the morning or going and checking the social media feeds save those things that don't need much brain power or the filing of your unmess or your messy desk don't do those first thing in the morning when your brain your body clock is fired up to get your brain working at full speed save those things for the post-lunch slump if you can't get a break if you can't go to a darkened room and put your head down or you can't just you know take it easy or go for a gentle walk then do those things that need as minimal brain power as possible that aren't going to matter if you make some mistakes because that is a time when your brain is having its natural lull. It's a good idea to stay out of the car, to not do driving or anything involving any kind of machinery during the hours of two and, and four or one and three because that's when you're going to have the most mistakes during your waking hours. Yes, this is truly fascinating science and the more mm. we learn about it. So do you think uh, that it will have a bit more implications to how we structure our society? So, for example, in judicial system or, or in the meetings, even in the boardroom, where you have to take very, very uh, important decisions or when to have the meetings, etc. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it depends who reads the book. I mean, all this research is out there. And I mean, hopefully this... Uh, book which has been really popular i mean it sold out uh completely ran out of of all stock in the first sort of month or two after after it was released so around uh around christmas time around new year i mean it got to the top of the charts and it just sold out and because of the whole brexit thing is that there were problems the hold-ups with um with kind of getting imports and some of the some of the printing uh printing uh, factories were had delays and things so it sort of fell completely out of the chart for about a month or so because there were delays in getting it through but hopefully you know 
uh, people would read the book or they'd, you know, it would people would realise that actually the way we traditionally structure the working day is actually not the best way to do it. So, yeah, don't do the things, uh, use those those energy demanding, those intellectually demanding tasks first thing in the day. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is that everybody's got their own unique body clock. Some people are what we say the morning lux. They get up naturally early in the morning and they're, they're, they're the kind of people who wake up at five in the morning and they're good to go. Uh, they get They get loads of stuff done before even, you know, they, before they even have breakfast, maybe. And um, people are all kind of geared towards one end or the other. So either morning or evening. Some people are, are what we call night owls. Their body clock is shifted more towards later. And they, they find they work better later in the day. And they come into their best later in the day. Uh, so it's about understanding your own body clock. The scientific term for your body clock is your chronotype. Everybody's got a particular chronotype that is... That is, that is kind of unique to you, but it's also based based on your age. When you're young, when you're a baby, your sleep-wake cycle is all over the place. You kind of you wake and you sleep at any time. I don't know, if, Galina, if you've got kids, but if you've got if or, or you know people have got had babies, but it's basically as a parent, it's a case of try and get the sleep whenever you can because because the little one will wake up and sleep just whenever they want to. Um, and it's just all over the shop. But then as you as you grow, as your brain develops, you start to form a, a daytime, nighttime sort of sleep-wake pattern. But that is shifted to quite early in the day. So, you know, a 10-year-old kid will probably go to bed about, they're probably going to sleep about nine o'clock, and then they'll maybe wake up eight or nine hours later. And then as they get older, then your body clock, for reasons we don't really understand, as the brain matures, the body clock sort of shifts forwards. So with every advancing year, the body clock goes forwards um, by at least a few minutes every year. And it's at its latest when we're in our late teens and early 20s. So by the time you're 19, 20, uh, or in your early 20s, your body clock will be shifted to the furthest forward it will ever be. And so you, that's why when you're when you're a teenager or you're in your early 20s, uh, you're quite happy to go up partying till till midnight or one, two in the morning. And, and then and then you don't want to wake up till about 10 in the morning either because, you know, you still need the same amount of sleep. But if we acknowledge that, then we realise that when you are in that age bracket, so you're getting towards the end of the teens, um, then actually don't have, you know, the school lessons, the most demanding school lessons first thing in the morning, the most intellectually demanding lessons. Those, those school lessons, we have to sit down and concentrate you know, maybe the math lessons, maybe the maybe the the reading, the English language, or the your literature lessons. Those things that need a lot of mental power. If you do them first in the morning, then that is actually um, not the best time for learners. There's actually when you're about eighteen, nineteen, you're about you're in, you're in a time zone that's two hours difference. So when you wake up in the morning, if you're doing a lesson at say uh, nine o'clock that is the seven o'clock of say a 30 year old for, for, for between 18 and a 30 year old so you're you know you're back or nine o'clock a nine o'clock morning is 
yeah, nine, nine is seven. A seven o'clock wake up is like a five o'clock, which is why, you know, teenagers find it so hard to get out of bed first in the morning. They're not necessarily being lazy, although some teenagers are lazy. I'll admit, I think I probably was a bit lazy when I was a kid. Um, but it's actually your body clock is set at a different time. So I think, again, it's appreciating this, appreciating the science about what's going on, about what really behind the answer to these questions, that you can actually rejig uh rejig our our daily routines and uh, there is good evidence to show that when you move the school day slightly later for students that are older then their performance improves significantly so that's just an example of some things about how hopefully we can apply lessons and and bosses can do exactly the same thing for example if uh, your boss or the person who owns a company or whoever is in charge of your institution, if they insist that you have a lunch break and that you have that break away from your desk or wherever it is that you work, and ideally with other people or with somewhere that's a lot of daylight or ideally outdoors, then that actually has significant marked improvements on productivity. You need that time away from your desk or from wherever it is that you're working. If you're in a factory and you're working on a, on a production line, wherever it is, you need to step away from that place, both physically and mentally. And that is because you only produce most creative thoughts. You can only think freely. You can only learn. You can only remember. You can only empathize. You can only uh, be who you are in yourself. When your brain has switched off from its concentrating uh, mode, there's, there's various different brain networks that are operating at any given time when we're, when we're working, when we're talking, when we're eating, or whatever it is that we're doing, there's various different brain networks that are operating. And when you're working, when you're concentrating, a part of the brain towards the front of the brain, in the largely in the frontal lobes, called the central executive network, I call it the concentration network, the concentration brain network. That is what's firing. That can only maintain concentration for maybe an hour, maybe 60, maybe 90 minutes at a push of. of continuous concentration which is why you need a break but if you're if you're sort of working generally throughout the morning uh if you're doing some times of concentrating some bits of what looking out the window or chattering so chatting you're breaking things up maybe you're you're cooking you're a chef there's times when you're concentrating there's times when you're watching there's times when you're just relaxed a little bit you can then maintain your productivity for about two or three hours and then you need a break so when it comes to lunchtime you need that break to let those uh frontal lobes the the, the parts of you that needs to at least to concentrate to not make mistakes can recover and by stepping away you can let your your brain slip into its wandering uh pattern its wandering network as i call it which is technically called the default default mode network so you need to give your brain time to do that to be able to step out of that and that only happens if you walk away from your work and it's important that it happens around lunchtime and it's then that you will actually form memories. You'll make sense of everything that you've been doing in the morning. That's when that default mode network is 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 firing. And actually, when you're just not thinking about anything, your mind is just freewheeling. Your brain is more active than at any other time. 
So when that is happening, that is when you can be creative. And that is why when you're not thinking about very much at all, maybe you're in the shower or you're walking in the park, that is when you're in the default mode network, your thoughts can can, can link together, memories can form, and you have those eureka moments. So again, that, that's, so that's several things. I think appreciating this in the whole can have profound effects on our life. And I discovered this in researching and writing the book. And one of the editors that was writing the book, who was uh, who was going through the book and, you know, piecing it all together, he said, you know, I said, it's the best book I've worked on. You know, I've been as I've been going through this, it's really been changing, you know, how I do my day. So, yeah, there you are. Okay. So uh, as we go through the day and towards the evening, what mm. are the important things that we need to think about, about relaxing, for example, or do we need to exercise in the evening? Yeah, exercise is, is is one that I put in the evening, not because exclusively you need to exercise in the evening, but for most people, towards the second half of the day is the time when you will exercise at your best. And that might sound a bit strange because so many of us like to get up in the morning and do a bit of fitness first thing in the morning. I know I do sometimes. You know, it's nice if you are a person who, who can get into exercise, uh, which is obviously the benefits of which are just countless uh, then a jog in the morning can, is, a, is a good thing to do but first thing exercise uh the science shows us you're not going to be at your best first thing in the morning so the morning is the time for gentle exercise not the sort of the i'm going to hit it with all i've got down the gym that's the time when when you do something maybe a jog maybe a brisk walk that sort of thing because what you find is that in the way that your body clock is geared Okay, to I guess for there's like a, there's a time and a place for everything. For for your body clock, it's saying there is an optimum time for most things that you do. Exercise that happens to be later in the day, you know, at a time when your energy reserves have been built up from from breakfast and lunch, and all the the chemical pathways that are, that are happening in the body, all the enzymes in the muscles and everything else has had time to basically warm up. Now, our body's a bit like a, a big locomotive engine, a big, big steam train that needs time to get going. And you find eight to nine hours after waking is, on average, the optimum time for exercise performance. That's when you'll perform at your best. So it kind of be late afternoon, early evening for many people will be about the time when you want to be exercising to be at your best. You can do this yourself, Glida. If you if you like to go for a jog first thing in the morning, I don't know. Is that the sort of thing you might do? Uh, so I've got specific times that I uh, do my exercise, basically. <laughs> first thing in the morning. Uh, no, in the evening. In the evening, okay. Because, but if you were to try to say go for it, and I, and I do this with my with my bike indoors because I often have a have a cycle first thing in the morning, and I always find without fail, no matter how hard I try in the morning, I mean this is my experience, but the science backs it up. You will always perform better later on in the day. I I always definitely find this, and you see this in studies, is that you perform better later in the day, and incidentally, this I believe is one of the reasons why more world records are broken in the early evening partly because that is when you know top athletes tend to be in their early 20s and late teens when their body clock is at its latest and so they naturally come to the fore in the early evening which is kind of convenient because that's when a lot of sporting events put their 
put their main events on because it it's kind of coincides with television television watching habits uh, but that is also when most of the world records are be, are being broken because that is the time when people who are of athletic age in their athletic prime are hitting their best point of the day so if you're going to exercise and you want to get the best out of your workout then shift it to later on in the day so uh, your book is a really structured Uh, to uh, to be read in one go, you can try it, but you can also read it, uh, just open it anywhere and you would get uh, that hit of uh, science that you would uh, need. And if you want to learn one fact, at least per day, you're covered for a year, basically. But if, but I what, what I really uh, found really, really useful that I can go through the book and pick up the Uh, topics that are really relevant to me. For example, as you say, if I exercise, I, I do exercise in the evening exactly for the reasons you said, but I actually never realized that that was backed up by science mm. uh, before. So what was this rationale to structure it like a life uh, reference to life manual where you can just open it and learn something really useful? Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that about it being a book that you can just pick up and open. And I've had people, uh, various people say to me uh, in various kind of interviews, uh, people have said, you know, they use it as a family. You know, they will open, you know, at mealtime at breakfast or something in the morning, they'll open it and they'll they'll read the question and then they'll have a chat about it and then they'll find out what the answer is and they can they, they'll discuss it. So yeah, it is one of those really nice things that you can pick up and you can just dip into. And there's an audio book as well. And you know, and, and you can just listen to that all the way through. But I find that if you listen to it, it's actually quite nice just to break up and do it into sort of bite-sized chunks because it is one of those nice things that you can that you can just pick up. You can just pick something up. But one thing in terms of writing the book that I wanted to do was to make it relevant to cross ages and cultures and creed, essentially, because you find that a lot of books are either written with a sort of a male-centric focus or a very kind of white Western focus. And I tried mm. very hard not to do that and so I made sure that there were sections in the book that were dedicated to to women to you know things that only affect females um so there's things in there about about menstrual cycle about periods there's things there about the menopause and I think one of the things that I hopefully I bring out in the book is about how wrong science has been to sideline uh female quote-unquote issues Uh, as you know, I write in the book saying that you know uh, the physiology of 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 women has been largely ignored because it's been seen the hormonal monthly cycles has been seen as a complication that sort of makes you know makes studies on drugs and understanding the biology of the body more difficult, and that's like mm. saying well, half of the world um, they don't count. And so, you know, I try to sort of redress the balance a little bit and just highlight to the reader that this is something that is kind of endemic within all of science, unfortunately, and it sort of reflects the larger world, I think. So there's an attempt to sort of within there to sort of cover all the bases. And I hope that that's kind of what happens in the book. The book is also beautifully illustrated and uh, you, you bring up so many different graphs and ways to actually show the, the information to convey the complex uh, uh, topics. So what were the rationales behind the decisions to include some of the visuals and, and also I would say the color theme as well, which is really, really lovely. 
Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. When I, when I saw it and I saw it being put together, I was just amazed at how it's, you know, I owe it all largely to the incredible graphic designers that there are at DK Books. They, they've got some of the best graphic designs in the world, I'm convinced. You give them something, you give them the text, and uh, I'd often you know, put together, sketch together a diagram or something that I thought, oh, this is an interesting way of, of presenting it. And then they take it and then they do something even more incredible with it. And I go, you know, so there's one where I talk about the the bystander effects, which is kind of answering one of the questions of why is it that people in the city seem so rude? Uh, it's sort of a, a follow on from that question. The bystander effect is where if there's somebody who's in need of help, uh, then if it's in a busy place, then most people have a tendency to sort of walk by. You may have seen these experiments. They often do them on television where you mm-hmm. where they do a setup of somebody's collapsed in the street and they put in a, a hidden camera and you time how long it takes for somebody to go up to them and say, are you okay? And, you, and it's always frightening how long it takes for somebody just to go up and check that they're okay. And it's called the bystander effect, this tendency for us to not want to step out from the crowd. We, we fear being... Uh, being being foolish, we assume that there's other people who who can probably help better than us. All these different factors, and it's called the bystander effect. And I kind of researched and found out some some various statistics at, at, at various numbers when a crowd is so big. Uh, when there's maybe one, two, or three people, then eighty percent of the time, eighty eighty five percent of the time, then people go and help. As the numbers go up, the percentage of people who uh, that, will, that are likely to help or that help will be given goes down. And they created this beautiful sort of way of doing circles and sort of almost like a pie chart thing. But it's but it's ever so clever the way that they've done it. I think you've got a. I don't know if you've seen that diagram, but it's. It, you, I looked at it and went, that is a genius. And, mm. and so I passed it back. Said, said whoever did this is very very clever so and it's just lots of different ingenious little things like with what the coffee uh explanation they managed to get in graphs and put them into the into a like a coffee cup and it's just very very clever lots of very smart things so yeah i i owe it largely to to the the clever people who who have spent spent their lives uh working out ways to make things look beautiful Yes, and it's uh, worth mentioning because uh, you wrote an excellent book, and uh, it's it's not just just you, isn't it? It's the mm. whole team, basically. <laughs> it is, yeah. And that, again, that's been that's very that's been a very interesting sort of learning curve um, in the whole sort of process of writing these books because all the books I've done have been very visual, and and for me that's very important because you know to just have words on a page. I'll be honest with you, I find you know. Books without images, books without pictures, quite hard going. And I think a lot of people who are scientifically inclined, we have very visual minds. We have, you kind of, we we imagine the things. We imagine the world that is very difficult to see, maybe on the microscopic or on the macroscopic, on the small and the very large level. Um, so it's about making it very real and very tangible to people. So the pics have always been quite important. And I found that when I first started, when we did the, with the first one, which was the science of cooking, which is very much written as all the books are not to a scientist um the designers and the artists hadn't really done stuff about science before and so it was quite a challenge because i said to them so i would put together my diagram of i think this is you know this is what happens when you chop an onion here's a picture of an onion cell 
schedule up and I'd send them across electron microscope images and, and light microscope images of this is what a cell looks like. Can we get it to look like this? And they go, yes, 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 that's fine. And then they go away and make something quite artistic. And I'd say, no, no, you can't do that. Portions are all wrong. Um, and so I think that was quite a learning curve for them as well, mm. for the design team. to to They weren't used to somebody saying, okay, it looks cool, but it's completely scientifically wrong. Um, and so that was actually really quite hard work. There was lots of bouncing to and fro. This, on the other hand, was was a lot easier because it's a lot more about facts and figures and numbers. And and then you can have a lot more, you know, about routines and health things and food and psychology and how the mind works and the brain works and all these different things and digestion. So those things kind of lend themselves to slightly more abstract, more kind of fun, lighthearted uh, kind of approach. So yeah, but it's been a it's been a I think learning curve for for all parties, yeah. But that but you know, it is it is definitely a a team effort. Uh, so your curiosity and enthusiasm, also combined with the scientific authority and expertise, make you really effective science communicator. So why do you think it's important to convey reliable scientific information and also debunk uh, uh, some myths and especially health myths? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. It's almost kind of cliche now to say in the time that we're living in of, you know, misinformation and disinformation is just a wash. We especially and we see it all the more all the more in the whole COVID, the coronavirus uh, pandemic of the amount of of disinformation, of lies, of conspiracy theories that are out there. I mean, it's it's as worse than it, than it ever has been. And, you know, and I wrote this, started writing this book before all of this, before the coronavirus um, kicked off. Uh, I mean, it was sort of, it seems quite opportune that it was released at a time when many of us are reassessing our life and our routine. And so it seems very kind of timely in that respect. And I guess, and there are so many health uh, myths and myths about everyday life. And so that was one of the key um messages of the book to so this is what uh this is what your mum told you but actually this is this is what your mother told you but actually this is what uh the science says uh just sort of challenge those because that's often one of the best ways that we learn is we, we have those moments of did you know that that thing about always losing the most heat from your head or that breakfast being the most important meal of the day they aren't actually based in science and then giving the answer as to why that can often be a really powerful way to learn things. So, yeah, so it is really important to, to bust those myths because it's going to be a fantastic learning experience. I mean, it is much more difficult to uh, shift people's mindset when they are wedded to something that is uh, kind of very kind of conspiratorial, a kind of conspiracy theory, uh, which I don't think I can do in this book. But I think it's a good sort of exercise to have some fun with. Uh, dispelling some of the myths that um, that we so often take as as truth. And after researching the book, have you changed how you approach your everyday life? Yeah, I think so. I think, as I mentioned before, I think the way I structure my day, the way I sort of seize uh, the best time of the day, the way that, you know, in the morning I will make sure that I don't, you know, the first hour or two of the day, where, of my working day, um, that I don't, um, you know, don't do, you know, things that would be better spent, as, as I've said before, later on in the day. I think other things we've not got on tonight, but sleep 
is to reprioritize sleep. You know, one thing to say is that sleep, if you want to seriously live a better, healthier and happier life, uh, then you must, must prioritize sleep because that is the cornerstone of pretty much everything, good mental, physical and emotional well-being. You you know, I can just list them off. And in the book, there's a whole kind of a, a great big sort of beautiful sort of page dedicated to all the different things about how sleep is important. So one week of bad sleep, by the end of the sleep, your body is already starting to develop the first signs of diabetes. After one bad night's sleep, your body is, 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 is generating fewer cancer-fighting cancer white blood cells. Um, there is not one mental or physical health condition that is not improved by good sleep. You feel ill or unwell, you naturally go to bed to sleep because it is the best healing tonic that you have is to sleep. It's when your body repairs, it's when your brain repairs, it's when your emotions are restored. So to prioritize sleep, you, if you can't sleep, uh, then you can't regulate your hunger you can't control your weight. Your body will preferentially burn muscle rather than fat if you're sleep deprived. You won't be able to resist those treats on your way home from work, that fast food joint, if you're not well slept. So you must, must prioritize sleep. And so making sure that sleep is a priority and seriously considering whether you have a nap in the early afternoon. So I work from home and actually I had a little nap this afternoon because I was just feeling a bit sleepy. You don't have to every night, but I think, you know, 20 minutes minutes is a nice thing to do to sort of restore it's a very natural it's a very healthy thing to do so prioritizing sleep is definitely one thing that has that has changed in my life profoundly and i wonder if you could settle the really crucial debate so as an expert is it milk or tea first Milk or tea first? That's really <laughs> you know, going, going back to my roots, that's a great question. Now, there are different theories, so there is no one. Now, you see, science, I can tell you what science says, but then when it comes to all things food, you know, in the, in the, in the UK, we have this thing about um, cream and jam on scones. Uh, scones or scones, I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, they're sort of, uh, they're sort of like little um, semi-sweet, uh cakes or little 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 breads non-yeast leaven little sort of sweet breads and people traditionally have jam or cream on them or, or jam and cream and there's the big arguments about should you put the crap jam or the cream on first and people who live in in cornwall uh which is one of the large regions in the southwest the very bottom southwest corner of 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 the uk they always have a cornish they call it a cornish cream tea where they put the cream on top of the jam so the the clotted cream as it's called which is a very thick rich cream always goes on top of the jam um whereas people in devon which is the county just next door sort of slightly more towards the center of the country they have they do it the devon way so the devon corn the devon clotted the devon cream tea they would call it and that's the other mm. way around so they put the cream on the bottom and the jam on the top and i presented the research that shows why you know if you've got a very hot scone it's better to put the cream on first because the cream will melt and that en enhances the flavor release in both the scone the cream and the jam uh, and so there's a good argument to say have it that way around and the same way i will tell you with tea there is a good argument to say put the milk in afterwards 
because it lets you control the amount of uh, milk that you've got in there to your own personal taste and to your own personal preference. But some people will always say, no, I must put the milk in first. And again, there are arguments to putting the milk in first. So traditionally, it was said that you put the milk in first because when you were having tea, you'd have it in very fine bone china. That If you put the hot water, the hot tea from the... Uh, from the from the teapot straight into the the fine bone china, then there's a risk that that will cause it to crack. And so, by putting the milk in first, you're you're sort of protecting the 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 cup from changing from the the rapid change in temperature. So you're reducing the chance of the of the cup breaking of the cup cup shattering. Mm. Um, there's also an argument that if you put the milk in afterwards, then as the first drops of milk go into the very very hot maybe near boiling water, the milk proteins, as they drop in, they will actually cook. Uh, it goes above 50, 60 uh, degrees C. Those milk proteins will cook and you will get a little bit of a cooked milk flavour to your tea. Whereas if the milk is in first, then that won't happen because your hot drink is going into the milk. And so the milk won't won't cook, if that makes sense. But, the little, but if you put the milk in second, then the milk does kind of cook. And so some people have argued that putting the milk in first is better for the overall flavour. I've got to admit, I've never found any evidence or have ever tasted any difference with putting the milk in first or second. So it's largely going to be down to your own personal preference because let's be honest, most cups now aren't going, aren't going to break if you put boiling water straight into them. So me personally, I put it in second because it gives me greater control of the colour, which is also a, which is a good indicator for the kind of the strength, if you like, of the tea based on how long you've brewed it for. Instead, if you're if you're brewing with tea bags, the research I've done has found that if you leave the tea bag in there for uh, five minutes, that is a good length of time for the flavour to have uh, steeped, if you like, to have diffused fully uh, into the into the water without it becoming overly overly harsh. If you leave them for too long, you end up with too many of these substances called tannins, which have a sort of an astringent, dry uh, sensation in the mouth, which is which is generally seen as being unpleasant. So about five minutes which seems like a long time. People who just want to dunk a tea bag in, tea bag isn't the best way of having a cup of tea. But considering that, at least in the UK, something like ninety nine percent of all cups of tea are done with tea bags, that's kind of a good sort of guide for 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 having your cup of tea. So there you are tea as well as life all in one podcast <laughs> yeah sounds good and a lot of science in both <laughs> absolutely absolutely well we've taken up a lot of your time and i'd like to ask what are you currently working on and what is your next project i have another project although i am sworn to secrecy but it will be about the science of another avenue of our life and it will be another fresh approach to something that you won't have seen before but i am unfortunately sworn to secrecy uh, but yes i am going to be very busy over the coming months let's just put it that way sounds very intriguing <laughs> watch the space yes so where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book well if you if you search me if you 
Dr. Stuart Farmer, Dr. Stu Farmer. And you should find me on Google. If you want to find me on the social networks, you can find me on Real Dr. Stu, which is spelt out. So R-E-A-L-D-O-C-T-O-R-S-T-U. Uh, so that's that's my handle on Twitter and Instagram and all those various sort of platforms. Uh, so yeah, you can and then you can find links and things to various things that, that I've done. Uh, but yeah, if you want to get in touch, then please do. That's a good way of doing it. Uh, send me a mess- message on the social medias. Um, so yeah it's great yeah brilliant well thank you very much for joining me today it's been a really fascinating discussion thanks nice to chat with you Jelena